Well, tonight we're in Acts chapter 1 still. Uh, last week we got through the first eight verses and uh, we ended on verse, one, uh, verse 8, Acts 1-8. And you remember that was a, that was really the, that's really the key verse it's a, uh, in the book of Acts uh, as it talks about receiving the power of the Holy Spirit and then how uh, God was going to uh, empower the, the disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then it would spread to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and, and uh, uh, we talked a lot about that last week. But we left off after verse 8 because uh, really, really, if we'd had time, verses uh, 9 through 11 at least kind of go together with the first eight verses, but we just didn't have time to get into this part. And so we, we, we left it off in, this, in the middle of this conversation where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's told them, listen, you need to go wait in Jerusalem. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. And then on, on the, and that's the last thing he says to them. And then we get into verse 9. And, we'll, and I'm just going to read verse 9. And we'll, we'll read some more a little bit later. But verse 9, it says, after he said this, and this is after he had just told them, you will receive power from, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, I want to remind you again that the book of Acts is the second of two volumes because Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and then he wrote the book of Acts. And this is the continuing story of what Jesus began to do in his ministry. And so the first few verses of Acts chapter 1, if you remember, kind of overlap the last part of Luke. Because in Luke chapter 24, it also tells the story of Jesus uh, uh, being uh, uh, Jesus's ascension. So it's kind of overlapped there. It's told in a little bit different way, but it's the message and everything is the same. And that was really kind of the, uh, uh, the, the, the climax of Luke's gospel at the end of that. And as he blessed them, uh, it, it says that he was taken up into heaven. And that means, you know, he was gradually taken, not abruptly. He didn't just like shoot up in the sky, but he was taken gradually up into heaven. And then a cloud, and it was not an ordinary cloud, but undoubtedly a glory cloud, like in the, in the Old Testament, like it was a Shekinah glory. And that may be not a word that you have, you have heard before, but uh, that's, uh, and we'll talk about different instances where it showed up a little bit tonight. But that's just a word that when the presence of God uh, uh, appeared in a place in a really powerful way, uh, the, this, the, this cloud would just kind of appear and, the, and it was called, the Jewish people called it the Shekinah uh, of God. And, and so uh, that was what appeared there with Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means. But Jesus ascended slowly in a cloud right there in front of them. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Just get your opinions, no right or wrong. Why was it important that Jesus ascend to heaven in front of them? Why do you think it was important for him to do it right in front of them? The witness? Any other ideas? See, here's the thing. You remember this. God doesn't do things on a whim. He does them for a purpose. Like, for example, the resurrection that's coming, not of Jesus, but the resurrection of all believers. There's a reason for it. It's not just... Simply that God says, hey, you know what would be cool? Would be cool to resurrect all the believers at the, you know, at, at the end of all this. There's a reason for it. And, and I'm not here to teach about that tonight. But, uh, but basically the reason is, uh, you, you know, when we talk about human beings, you talk about having a body, soul, and spirit, right? And, and there's three parts and all of those are combined. Uh, but but the, there's a real threat. This is why death is truly an enemy that, that, that Jesus has defeated because when one part of that human being uh, it, it ceases to exist, then their existence is threatened with annihilation. And it's only by the intervention of God that the soul and the spirit can continue to, to subsist when the body is, is gone. And let me put it this way. You cannot be fully human without your body. You cannot be you without your body. Does that make sense? Because that is a part of who you are. You're not just 
body, and you're not just soul, you're not just spirit. You are body, soul, and spirit. So that means the resurrection is an important part of, what, of the plan of God. It's not just an add-on that he said that'd be cool. It's something that he does on purpose that's necessary, and there's a purpose behind it. And, and, all, and that's not what I want to talk about tonight. But the same principle is, is here, that Jesus could have just gone to heaven, but there's a reason why it was important for him to do this and ascend in front of them with them watching with a cloud. So the question is, is why? Well, first of all, we know that on several occasions since his resurrection, when you read the Gospels, you find out that there had been several times when Jesus had appeared to them, uh, and each time he disappeared. Remember one time they were inside a room, it was all locked, and, uh, and all of a sudden Jesus appeared to them and, and they hadn't, nobody had unlocked the door. He just showed up there and, and, then, and then later he would just be gone. He, remember after the, he talked with the, the two men on the road to Emmaus and they were having the meal together and suddenly uh, they finally realized who this was and as soon as they realized who he was, he was gone. So there had been times already that he had appeared and disappeared uh, before them, but this time it was different because they saw him ascending uh, into heaven, they, and this gave them the, assur the assurance as to where Jesus was. But here's the question. I'm going to lead to something, and this is, I, I, I debated, I'm telling you, every, every week when I prepare and I'm studying, I always, honestly, on Wednesday, I start reading all this stuff, getting things together, and I'm always... About, I'm always afraid, Lord, how in the world am I going to pull this all together by, the, by <laughs> 6.30 tonight? But as I, was, as I was reading this and getting prepared for this tonight, I wanted to go in a little different direction here on this. Uh, and I don't want to lose you. I don't want to get too weird or metaphysical or anything. But I want to talk about some things because if we don't understand some things, then we can't fully understand the ascension. Uh, let, let me just ask you this. Where was Jesus after he ascended? Okay, very good. You know, I'm not trying to trick you, I promise you. Uh, and ultimately, here, here's the way you can answer it. Uh, he, not only did he leave the surface of the earth, but he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is still bodily present as the, you could call him the God-man in heaven. Because part of the sacrifice that Jesus made when he became a human being on this earth is that he now has a body. He never had that before. He ever, never had that confinement before. But part, you know, it, it was, it, it, he still has his body. We know that's true, right? It, it, you know, when he appeared to the disciples, he said, look, it's me. You can see the scars. You can put your hand in my side. This is me. This is my body. And we know that, that he's there at the right hand of the Father. And then in Acts chapter 7, verse 55 uh, when Stephen, at the, when he was being stoned, he had a vision and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. So we know that he's there. We know that he's at the right hand of the Father and we say he's in heaven. But here's, here's a question and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a, probably a tougher question than what it may sound like. Where is heaven? <laughs> Where is heaven? Okay, that's a good answer. That's actually a, a much better answer than you're laughing, but you, that's a very good answer. See, here's what we do. You know, we think of heaven as up there. You know, we go up to heaven. So, you know, somebody passes away who knows the Lord and say they went up to heaven. Uh, but you know what? It's, it's not up in the sense of being somewhere out in space. Uh, it, it, it's it's, it's not up that way, it, it, you know, because if it was up from here, then Christians in China, when they died, they'd have to go around the earth to get there, you know, because up from here would be down from China, right? And, or, or if we're, you know, that was Jerusalem, so that means we'd be the ones having to get work our way around the earth to get there. So it's not up, uh, but it's a place that's higher. It's a place that's better. It's above everything that we know, and it's above everything we have ex experienced on earth. It's it's, it's up. You see what I'm saying? And so think about it like this. When we say heaven, and I think this is what the Bible teaches, heaven in the Bible, that's God's space and earth is our space. You know, there are different realms. Maybe you could think of it this way. We've heard, used frame, uh, words like this where we live in the physical realm, 
but that we know that there's also a spiritual realm, right? Heaven in the Bible, that's the name that we give to the place where the presence of God abides. So that's just what you said. Uh, heaven for us, as followers of Jesus, that's where Jesus is. So, you know, when we talk about heaven and, and eternally being in heaven, what we're really talking about is that we're going to be with Jesus. But the question is, where is that? And why does that matter? Well, here's the thing. Heaven is not just the happy place where God's people go when they die. It's more than that. God's plan is for, for his followers, God's plan for us is not for us to leave the earth altogether and then to go to heaven instead. Uh, what is God's ultimate plan for eternity? Well, I want to show it to you. Revelation chapter 21, the first seven verses. This is John when he's seeing this, this vision. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? This is what he saw. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any, any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard the, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who has, was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my, my children. That is really ultimately what we think of when we think of heaven. But it is not a place out there somewhere. It is a new heaven and a new earth. Now I'm going to talk about what that means. God's plan as we see repeatedly throughout the Bible is for a new heaven and a new earth and for, and for them to be joined together in, the, uh, in that renewal once and for all. Because what we have now, we have, we have the spiritual realm, we have the physical realm, but they're really separated, aren't they? Ultimately, God's plan is to say, I'm going to create a new heaven. That's, that's what the word heaven we're talking about, the spiritual realm, a new earth. And they're going to be brought together, combined under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And it's not going to be two realms anymore, but it's going to be, it's going to be put, brought together and there'll be no more death and no more sorrow and all of these things. God's plan is to bring the realm of humanity into the realm of God and to make those two places one. I, I know this is really out there, <laughs> you know, but just hang in here with me. God's plan is to bring the spiritual world and the physical world together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Heaven may well be our, our temporary home in, the, in what we think of where, where a Christian passes away now. It's a temporary home after this present life, but the, but the whole new world united and transformed, that is our ultimate and eventual destination. And that's, it's important for us because when we think of heaven, we say, where is heaven? Heaven, we've got to grasp that heaven in, in, in this situation, is, it's not a location within our cosmos of space or time or, 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 or matter that's you know, situated somewhere up in the sky. Uh, until we realize, and when we begin to realize that, then we're ready to understand the ascension. Because neither Luke uh, you know, or, nor the other Christians, that none of those thought that Jesus had suddenly become like a, prison, a primitive spaceman, you know, heading off into orbit in the great beyond and, you know, where that if you just search throughout the reaches of what we call space that you'd eventually find him. It's not up there, in our, it's not in somewhere off in a distance in, in our realm or our, in, in, our, uh, in, in the realm of humanity, in the, in the physical world. And they believed that, that heaven and earth... This is a way to think of it as two interlocking spheres of God's reality. 
We have the physical world, but the spiritual world, in a sense, is even more real. That's the reality of the presence of God in, this, in the spiritual world. And that spiritual realm oftentimes sort of invades this physical realm, doesn't it? We see that with healings. We see that with the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. You see it when uh, you read the Bible, when angels would appear and speak to people. That was the spiritual realm, the reality of that spiritual realm breaking through into the physical realm that we, that we live in. But when we begin to understand all of this, all of these things, that these are two realms that are, that, that are, that are two spheres of God's reality, then we begin to realize, here's the thing. Jesus, during the days after his resurrection, before the ascension, he would just appear, right? Well, think about this. Jesus, after his resurrection, with his glorified body, he became the first and, and still the only one to this day to, so far, the first person that was fully at home in both realms. Fully at home in the spiritual realm, fully at home in the physical realm, and able to interact with both of them at any time. So, you know, it wasn't just this, a magic trick that Jesus just disappeared. It's that he was able to be here in the physical realm. He was able to be there in the spiritual realm. He was able to, he, he, was, he uh, was fully equipped and, and to be at home in both, both places. And one day when, when our, the resurrection comes with our spiritual bodies, our resurrected bodies, uh, then we will be at home, be able to, uh, to function and abide in both places. It's the combination. It's, it's the full restoration that God is planning with all of creation. Now, now, this brings us back now to the point of, of the ascension. Jesus is lifted up, indicating to the disciples that he was, he was going into God's dominion. Now, it says that a cloud surrounded him. And the cloud, as so often in the Bible, is, a, is the sign of God's presence. We see it multiple times. Think of the pillar of cloud and fire uh, that the children of Israel wandered, uh, followed as they wandered through the desert. Exodus 13, the Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. So, so all right there, we already see that the presence of God in, in this physical world at times was manifest and they could see it through a cloud, this pillar of cloud. Think about the cloud and smoke that filled the temple when God became suddenly present in a new way. First Kings chapter eight, when the priests withdrew from the whole uh, from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. This is when Solomon built the temple and the presence of God said, this I'm pleased. And the spirit of God came and the presence of God filled that place. It says, and the, and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So the cloud was a symbol, a sign of the, of the powerful manifest presence of God. Think about the glory that surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 9 says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were, they were so frightened. I love Peter because he doesn't know what to say, but he's going to say something. And that's why I love Peter. And it says, then verse 7 says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So over and over again, when this cloud appears to the Jewish mind, this is a sign, this is a symbol of the manifest presence of God in a very powerful, powerful way. Then think about Daniel chapter 7. There's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 says this, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. All right? Again, we see the clouds. He approached the ancient one, that's the, 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 the father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, 
honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Who is that talking about? Yeah, that's right. Always guess Jesus first. That's talking about Jesus. So listen, for someone who had long pondered that passage, and there are plenty of signs that the early Christians, that these disciples, they were students of the word. They knew the word. Now, I mean, uh, the children would memorize the, the first five books of the Bible before they graduated. But by the time they were 12, they memorized that. So they knew the word. And, and someone who had read that, who knew that, who had studied that, who had thought about that passage, trying to understand the meaning of it, now all of a sudden, after reading that, they see, see Jesus being taken up by a cloud into the heaven, which in the Jewish mind was going into the presence of God, being carried by the cloud. They're watching this and they're saying, this is Daniel chapter 7. Can you see that? This wasn't just a whim. This wasn't just something that would be, that the father said, hey, this would be a pretty cool way for Jesus to come back to heaven. But Daniel 7 had been fulfilled in a dramatic and unexpected way. This human figure who had suffered at the hands of the evil powers of, of the world was now being exalted into the very presence of God himself there to receive kingly power. And the disciples immediately understood by watching this that Jesus had gone into the presence of the Father. And while he was there, he was going to be, he was a, he was going to be exalted to rule and reign over the heavens and the earth. They know this by watching this being carried off by a cloud. So the, so the ascension was important because it was a sign to the, to the disciples that Jesus didn't just disappear, and you're not sure where he is. They knew this was a very clear statement to the disciples of saying, this Jesus, who you, have, you saw crucified, you saw resurrected, has now been ushered into the presence of the Father, and he has been exalted to a place of authority. That's why Paul later could write that, uh, that every knee would bow, that God has exalted him, and every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it was important. But in what ways did the ascension change Jesus' ministry? Anybody have any ideas on that? How did it change Jesus' ministry? Okay, that's good. He'd have to depend on his disciples. Right, right, and, and that's the thing. The, the, ascension, the ascension of Jesus expanded his ministry because while he walked the face of this earth, he was confined to one geographical location, right? Anybody here, have you ever been able to be two places at once? As much as you wish you could at some times, right? And, and, and you need to be sometimes, but, but he was confined to one geographically uh, location, uh, and now his ministry moves from, from him being the one that, that, that walks in this power of the Spirit like he did on the days of this earth. He, he left, and his ascension paved the way for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the gift of the Father was going to be even better than Jesus staying on earth. Now, when he told the disciples, listen, it's better for you that I should go, I know that didn't make any sense to them because they're like, how can this possibly be better? But now the baptism of the, baptism of the Holy Spirit was now going to empower every believer who would receive it to be a powerful extension of Jesus' ministry. So it took, the, it took the ministry of Jesus from a single location and exploded it to go wherever any believer goes that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it, it took it to a whole new level. Let's look what happened after the ascension. Verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood behind them, beside them. Excuse me. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And I love, there's actually, there's a little bit of an element of a rebuke there. Uh, and I can understand the disciples. When you see this happen, and you know, you understand, okay, he's going into the presence of the Father. He's being crowned with, with authority over every tribe and every nation, every tongue, every, every person on, in all of creation. And you're watching this, it'd be really easy to stand there and just have your jaw drop, wouldn't it? And you're like, well, uh, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. And they're standing there, and they're saying, they're saying, why are you standing here? Why are you staring at the sky? It's almost being sarcastic. Uh, he's not there. Why are you standing here? And, and part of the message in that is, is for them to understand. They're being told, don't get caught up in the past. Don't just try to live in the memories of your times with Jesus. Don't get lost even in the wonder of the moment. But remember, he gave you a job to do. So why are you standing here? Get to it. And he, they said, this same Jesus who has been taken from you and into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. That means bodily, visibly, and on clouds of glory. Mark 13, 26, Jesus himself said at that time, People will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So you see again that, that, that picture of the clouds, of the, the, the glory and the presence of God as He comes back on the cloud. And, and He will uh, come again, but He will not again be born as a baby. He will not appear in another form or, or take another identity. He will not be reincarnated or He will not channel His personality through another individual. He will not return in spirit form. In fact, he's already here in the presence, in the person of the Holy Spirit. He will descend through the clouds in his own body because it said this same Jesus, not someone like him, not his spirit, not his, his ideas, but this same Jesus will come. He will descend in his own body physically, literally, dramatically, unmistakably. Everyone will know this is, the, this is Jesus. This is the Lord of all creation. This is the one who died on the cross and was resurrected. He is the king. And, and that promise is what we call our blessed hope. Titus 2.13, it says, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope. Now, you know, I love the word hope, especially the biblical idea. But hope doesn't mean the same thing in the Bible as we often use it. Because when we say, I hope something happens, you know, we think, well, there's a chance, but it may not happen, Right? I hope this happens. Well, this is not, that's not what it means when we say our blessed hope. Uh, the word translated hope uh, literally means a confident expectation. I'll, I'll give you a, a picture to understand what we're talking about here as far as the hope that we have in the return of Christ. Um, how many of you, uh, maybe, maybe one of your children or just picture in your mind a child, a small child, and their daddy goes to work every single day. And every day their daddy comes home at about the same time. And, and that child, you know, gets a little bit of a sense of the rhythm of the day, don't they? And, and so, so as the time is starting to draw near and they know it's got to be getting close to the time that daddy comes home. Picture that child going up and pressing their face against the window and watching for their daddy. He's hoping, this is the idea of hope, he's hoping to see his daddy. It's not that he doesn't think he might not come, it's that he knows he's coming and he has, that's what gives him hope to be able to stand there and wait and watch because he has this confident expectation that daddy's going to come home and he's going to be watching for him because he has this expectancy. And we have a confident expectation of the return of Christ that we can look to the heavens and be confident. We say, it's not that I hope he's coming uh, in the sense that we use it, but it's that I have, this is what gives me hope in life, life because I have this absolute confident expectation. He is going to come and, and it feels like it's going to be soon. And so I'm going to watch for him because he's going to appear. And we should be ready for his sudden return. But you know what? The way we get ready for it 
It was right there. He, they said, why are you standing here looking up in the sky? We should be, we get ready, not by standing around staring at the sky. Now listen, I, I'm going to say something. Uh, I, love, I love biblical prophecy, but I've also known Christians that got so caught up in prophecy that they missed the, the, the power of the gospel. You know what I'm talking about? Where they're just so caught up in trying to understand the meaning of prophecy, which the problem with that is uh, prophecy is never fully clear in our minds until it's been fulfilled. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, right? But how many biblical scholars uh, miss Jesus? Because they, they couldn't see the full meaning, the full understanding. Of it. And in, in hindsight, you, know, you get pictures and you say, okay, I know this is, we know this much, we know about this. But until it happens, we don't fully know exactly how that prophecy is going to play out until it actually takes place, right? So we know Jesus is coming, but we, we can't sit down and say, this is exactly what's going to happen. This is what it's going to look like. This is what's going to feel like because we haven't, it hasn't happened yet. Does that make sense to everybody? You know what I'm saying? So we know what the prophecy says, but we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And, 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 uh, and anyway, uh, the whole idea is that, you know, we don't stand around looking up at the sky. He says, listen, we got to be busy. If you want to be ready for the return, you get busy doing everything you can and working hard to spread the good news and help build Christ's church so that others will be ready for when he returns. Let's keep reading verse 12. We're going to read uh, really to the end of the chapter here and then we'll talk about these things. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs uh, to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Now, this is the same, other than Judas, it's the same list of disciples that are listed in, in the Gospels and in, in Luke. Uh, however, one, I'll just point this out, there's a little bit difference because the order is a little different. Uh, because John is moved up kind of to second on the list, probably because he is... Uh, he has worked so closely in tandem with Peter throughout the book of Acts. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the, and then uh, verse 18 is a parenthetical statement. What's happening here, uh, when it lists the number of, of people that were in the room in this next part, what's happening here is Luke inserts a little bit, this is not something that Peter said, he inserts a parenthetical statement to try to explain what Peter's talking about to somebody who's reading this who may not fully understand what took place with Judas, Okay. So it says, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas brought, bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. So he explains that a little bit, which by the way, uh, some people have said, well, there's a difference there between his description of it and Matthew's description of Judas's death, because Matthew says he's hanged, hanged himself. But what you've got to understand is, when it says he hanged himself, there are two ways in their culture at that time that, that, they, that they said someone was hanged. Uh, one was being hung on a cross. And the other was being impaled on a, on a sharp pole. Uh, we know that Judas did not hang himself on a cross. So, uh, especially with Luke's description, what, what we begin to realize is that the way that Judas hanged himself was that he impaled himself on that field. And that's how it says, that, would, that explains how it says that he fell, there, he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. So that was the, what he did to kill himself. Let's keep reading, verse 20. First said, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. 
and may another take his place of leadership. So Peter's focus here is on uh, as Judas betrayed Jesus, that uh, that it was there was consequences, and that he was he was really making a point that he is uh, not part of the believers, that he has lost out on what Jesus had wanted to do for him, uh, and that's I'll talk in a minute about why that's important. Verse twenty one, I think it is. It's small, I can't read it. <laughs> Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have, who have been with us from the, the, the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So that's the key point that he's trying to make. He's saying this is why they want to do this, and I'll, we'll talk about why it was important. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, when they, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over the, this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. All right, so we're reading this. After Jesus ascends into heaven, they realize he's gone into the presence of the Father to be uh, crowned as, as the, uh, with great authority. They do exactly what he said to do because he had said to them, go back to Jerusalem and stay there until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they walked a short distance back across the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem. It says it was a Sabbath day walk. Now, what, what that means is it doesn't mean it was a Sabbath day. Actually, we know that this was 40 days after the resurrection. So the resurrection was on a Sunday morning. So this was would have been a Thursday. So it wasn't a Sabbath day. But a Sabbath day walk, what that means, it's, a, it's really talking about the distance because, uh, you know, the, God had, had said not to work on the Sabbath, right? Well, all of the teachers in the, uh, of the law, they begin to talk about, okay, w- what does it mean to work? And so they begin to, to add all these things and say, you can do this, you can't do that. And part of what they said was, uh, was that uh, uh, you can only walk a certain distance on a Sabbath. And if you go beyond that distance, then that's work and you're breaking the Sabbath. And so a Sabbath day walk was that distance that they allotted, that they said you can walk, which it worked out to be about three quarters of a mile. Which, which what was funny was that, uh, you know, human beings, we, we can justify anything. And so they had these rules and then other Pharisees and other teachers of the law decided that was a little restrictive. So they said, well... You can only walk three quarters of a mile from your home, and and your home is wherever your belongings belongings were. So they'd take something from their home, you know, just like a, a spoon. I mean, it wasn't a spoon, but they'd take a spoon with them, and and they'd walk three quarters of a mile and lay it down on the ground and say, "This is now my home." And they'd walk another three quarters of a mile. And then how we do, you know, we we just find a way to justify things. But that's what the distance was. That's what a Sabbath day walk means. And then they, it says they went to the upper room where they were staying. The upper room, which room? This very likely uh, was well. We you know we knew that we know that they were hiding out after the after the crucifixion in an upper room. It was very likely the same room where they'd been hiding out. It's probably close to the temple. We know that from Luke chapter twenty four that that it seemed like it was close to the temple. It was it was likely it, it very well could have been. The very same room that they celebrated the Last Supper, the final Passover with Jesus before his crucifixion. And it, and it, was, it was very likely that, that, the, that it, it was the same room where they had been, where Jesus had appeared to them several times. This was an important place to them. So they're, they're going back to this. And we're told that there were around 120 people present. And we're told that there were the 11 disciples were there. We're told that that uh, the, the women, it says, were there. Specifically mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, and then it says that Jesus' brothers, actually it would be his half-brothers, uh, because they had the same mother, but different fathers. And, and they were there. And it says that they persevered in prayer in one accord. Now, that's significant that it says that this group was in one accord. Why, you know, why, why is it significant that they were in unity in this situation? Well, let's start with the 11 disciples. We know that, uh, that in just uh, 
few weeks earlier, when they were on the way to Jerusalem before Jesus was crucified during that Passover celebration, that on the way, the disciples were arguing with one another over who was going to be the greatest. This is the same group, and now... They're in this room and they're all united in one accord. They were, they were jealous of one another. They actually saw each other in a sense as rivals of one another. And now after an encounter with a risen Christ, they were all with one mind and they were united together with one purpose. And, and you know what? It's still true today. Being united in one accord with one purpose is still an important key to getting God's work done today. Uh, uh, any church that wants to do great things and move forward with the, for the cause of Christ, we've got to be united and, and, and be united with one purpose, one goal, going one direction if we, want to, if we want to move forward, if we want to see the kingdom grow. So the disciples there and the fact that they were united, that's a significant thing. But then it says that there were women there. That's a big deal because women in their culture, uh, no offense to the ladies here because it's not me, Women in their culture were considered just next to worthless. They, they, they couldn't testify in court. They, they had no meaning. They were almost considered more property than anything else. In, in, in all, not quite that, that bad. But what was different was that Jesus, when he walked this earth, when he, during his ministry, he treated women very differently than the rest of the culture did. He didn't look down on them. He considered them valuable. He, he, you know, he, he uh, with uh, Mary and Martha, they were big supporters of his ministry. And, and he treated women with, with great respect. And he recognized their value in moving the, the kingdom of God forward. And he, he treated them with love and grace and kindness. And now here's the, the, the real litmus test, if you will, because the disciples are there with these women and they live in a culture that looks down on women. And, and uh, in fact, if, if you counted a crowd of people, you didn't even count the women. But Jesus is gone. But we see that they've grown. Because now they're in one accord with the women. The women are right there at the very forefront of what God was doing and what he was about to do. And they were an important cog of everything that God was going to do. It says that Mary, Mary uh, the mother of Jesus, was there. Uh, that's interesting because she was there at the birth of Jesus, and now she's there at the birth of the church. And this is the last time we hear about her. But then it says Jesus' brothers were there. His half-brothers were there. That's, that's, that's interesting because before the crucifixion, they did not believe he was the Messiah. John 7, 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. In fact, at one point in time, Jesus and his mother Mary, they, 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 they tried to, to get to Jesus when there's this great crowd around him, and they tried to intervene and get him out and take him home because they knew that the re religious and powerful people were going to kill him. And they, the Bible says they thought he had lost his mind. And now they're believers. This is a big deal that these group of people, this group of people that are together, an encounter with a risen Christ and diligence in prayer had healed all the wounds, had brought about a group of people who were of one mind. And it says that they constantly, they joined constantly in prayer. And this included faithfulness to the temple at the morning and evening hours of prayer, but also persistence in the upper room which had become their headquarters because it had been such a significant place for them. And they, they kept an atmosphere of prayer and joyful praise with, with expectation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and they just, they prayed all the time. It was, it was an earmark. In fact, prayer at this point in time begins to appear as a mark of the early church. We talked about it in the introduction the first week of this, how important prayer was through the book of Acts, that how often it was referred to and how important it became to the early church. And this is the first place where we begin to see prayer being a real mark of the early church because you read the book of Acts and when they were fearful, they prayed. When they were confused, they prayed. When they needed an answer to a question, they prayed. When they faced persecution, they prayed. And, and while the disciples waited for the promise of the, of the Father, they were doing what they could do. They prayed. 
They, 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 they looked for the guidance that they needed from the Lord. They, and not only that, they were getting organized. See, when we say, we talk about waiting on the Lord, which, which I understand in our culture, uh, wait is a four-letter word in a lot more ways than just the fact that it has four letters. We don't like to wait, do we? You know, we, we live in an instant society. We got popcorn button on the microwave. We, you know, we have the drive-through, and if it takes more than two minutes of the drive-through, we're, we're, you know, we're ready to write a nasty letter to the manager. Um, we just don't like to wait. And, and but what we need to understand is when the God, when the Lord does say to wait, we need to wait. But that does not mean waiting on God does not mean doing nothing. It's not the same thing. We've got to do what we can while we can, as long as we don't run ahead of God. So if you're, if you, for example, let's say God's got you doing a ministry here and, and you feel his prompting to say, I want you to get involved in this ministry over here, but the door hasn't opened up yet or, or the resources aren't there, the timing's not right. It doesn't mean that you quit everything and say, okay, I'm going to wait on God to open the door. It means you do what you can. You keep doing what he's given to you until he opens the door, until he says, now's the time, until he makes it happen. But with God's help, you can better prepare yourself for, your, for future service by seeking his face constantly and by doing what you can with what you have today. It's part of the preparation. That's part of the waiting. But you know what? They did more than just pray. They also paid attention to what the scripture said. Listen, I can't emphasize this enough. When we talk about hearing from the Lord, God speaks to us through the, the word. He speaks to us through the Bible. Number one, number one means of communication. We're going to talk about guidance in a few minutes, but, but I, I want you to understand this. When you're asking guidance from the Lord, you pray for it, but listen, if you need guidance from the Lord, that's the most important time for you to get into the Scripture. Because he speaks to us through the word of God. And God spoke to Peter through the word of God. And what God showed Peter in the scriptures caused him to stand up and to draw attention to the fulfillment of, of David's prophecy spoken by the Spirit concerning, concerning Judas. See, see, the thing was, the tragedy about Judas was that he was one of the twelve and he received an, an assignment portion in their ministry. Jesus, think about this, Jesus sent him out with the others uh, and that he had the authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. He was there when Jesus performed these miracles. And he was present when Jesus promised the disciples that they would sit on the throne, on thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. And Peter quotes Old Testament prophecy and shows how Judas had fulfilled the prophecy, prophecies made by David. Psalm 69, 25 he said, may their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. He quotes that and says, this is talking about Judas. Psalm 109.8, may his days be few. May, may another take his place of leadership. And, and Peter is looking at this. And now he, because he, he has different ways of viewing, he can see the fulfillment of scripture in the current events. And he looks at this and he says, this is Judas that is talking about here. Which by the way, these, what Peter's emphasizing, what reads here, Judas is striking evidence that someone who is a believer can be lost. There, there are people out there that teach, they'll say, well, once you're saved, you're always saved. And, and, but they kind of play with words because they say, well, if somebody gets saved and then they go back out and live a life of sin, they were never really saved in the first place. Where, whereas I believe what scripture teaches is that someone can be truly a follower of Christ can partake in the ministry and the grace of God and they can choose to turn their back on Jesus and walk away and forsake all that Jesus stood for. Judas is evidence of that. Judas is evidence of that. So really it's kind of semantics because bottom line is in the end result, if you say, well, he was never saved in the first place and I say he was, the bottom line is he's not saved now. So, you know, it's, we get into these word games. But the main reason that Peter brought this up and, and the, for the process that they were going through was to make sure there were 12 apostolic witnesses. 
think about this. Jesus chose 12. There were more than 12 disciples. And there were more than 12 disciples that went with him all over the place. Isn't that right? We know that's true. But he chose 12 for a reason. Again, God doesn't do things on a whim, does he? He chose 12 for a reason to be the primary witnesses to his teaching and to his resurrection. And these 12, he told them that they would have positions of authority in the coming kingdom as well. And that they would be judging or ruling the 12 tribes. And to do that, 12 tribes was going to require 12 apostles. So they needed someone to replace Judas since he had been lost. And Peter said that David prophesied, may another take his place of leadership. So Peter says, this is what scripture says. We know that we need 12 because because this is all about restoring the kingdom of Israel and really restoring the, the order that God plans in the first place. So they needed another one. And Peter laid out the qualifications. He said, it's got to be someone who has been with Jesus the whole time, all the way from his baptism to his ascension. Had to be walking with him, had to be a witness to all of these things. In other words, this man had to have been personally trained by the Son of God. And if he had not been firsthand witness to the resurrection, then his testimony would not be admissible in court, and, in the, and, 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 and that's the minimum standard of credibility in Roman culture. So he understood that, that, listen, if we want our witness to be credible, this is who we've got to have. So Peter laid down the conditions, but the people then uh, offered some choices. And there were two men that, they, that, they, that finally met the conditions of that test. One was a man named Joseph, uh, named Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Like many Jews at the time also had a Greek name. His Greek name was Justice. And the other one was a man named Matthias. Well, to make a choice between the two, the apostles prayed, recognizing that the Lord knew which one he wanted to be the 12th apostle. And after prayer, they used the Old Testament method of casting lots. Now, what that means, we don't know exactly, but from other sources, what it seems to be, it was basically it was a couple of, of things that they would put in something and they'd shake it up and they'd have certain markings on it. And they would shake it until one of them came out and one of them came when that piece came out that would indicate the will of the Lord. The Old Testament, they used it all the time to determine the will of God because they said, listen, there is really no chance uh, involved in this because uh, if God is the Lord, he's the one who can suspend the laws of chance and he can make whatever happens he wants to happen. And so they do this and they cast the lots and they believe that Jesus was going to overrule the the laws of chance and he was going to show his choice to be the the 12th apostle and, and they cast the lots and they fell on, on Matthias, so he was named an apostle to take the place of the fallen Judas. Now here's the, here's the thing that we get into because there's, there's been a little bit of de- debate about this. Because later we know Paul had this miraculous conversion on the way to Damascus. And we know he is called an apostle. So that means... If Matthias is one and Paul is one, now we've got 13 apostles. So, so, that so many people have asked the question, did the disciples get ahead of God in appointing a successor to Judas? Well, I, I don't think so. Uh, to claim that the disciples got ahead of God doesn't take into account everything that was there. Uh, first of all, we have to believe that, you know, Peter, he could not be wrong about the situation and yet be inspired by the Holy Spirit about these quotations and his estimate of, of Judas. But when we look at this, at the, at the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, uh, we re- begin to realize that Paul's apostleship was unique in character. And even he said, listen, I, I, I'm a different kind of apostle than, than those 12. I, I'm not the same as them. Uh, Jesus chose Paul to be the apostle to who? To the Gentiles. But these 12, why were the 12? They were the apostles to the Jews. So there's no contradiction here. Paul never anticipated ruling one of the tribes of Israel. He was an apostle, equal in calling and equal in authority to the others. 
He was a true witness to the resurrection and the teachings of Jesus. Jesus himself had appeared and had taught him in the, in the wilderness. But he never, even himself, he never included himself with the twelve. He was a different kind of apostle. He was, they didn't get ahead of, of, of God because Paul was not going to be an apostle to the Jews to be the twelfth person for the twelve tribes of Israel. He was going to be a, a person that God called and set aside and said, you are an apostle, you're going to be the one that's going to be responsible for really launching this thing and taking, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the, the 120 were also in prayer when the choice is made. Surely they were in touch with God. And then when you, you read this, they added him to, to the apostles and in Acts 6-2, he's still included with the 12. But here, here's what I want to talk about and we'll close with this. Because here they had this big decision to make. Anybody here ever had to make a big decision? Of course we do. You know, for some of us, getting up in the morning, that's a big decision, right? Uh, they have, he had, they had this big decision to make. And the way they made their decision, their decision, this is a significant decision, right? It's a big deal. And they cast lots. You know, I mean, you could almost say it's like us, you know, throwing dice. Similar kind of concept. And they did that to determine the will of God. So my question for you is, why don't we still do that today? That's right. That, that's the key right there. This was a unique event. Uh, the, the casting lots was never mentioned again in the entire book of Acts. Uh, and we know Jesus wasn't there physically to tell them what he wanted. He had just ascended. Uh, he wasn't there to say, I want this guy. He wasn't there to say that. And also, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to them. And as I said, the book of Acts never mentions casting lots again to determine the Lord's will. But, but, but when you read the book of Acts, after the day of Pentecost, then they constantly relied on the Holy Spirit for guidance. In other words, here's the real answer why we don't do it today. The real answer is we've got a better guidance system than they had in the Old Testament. I mean, have you ever thought about what it'd be like getting guidance from the Lord if you were... Uh, part of the tribes, tribes of Israel wandering around in the wilderness. I mean, think about how easy it would be. Lord, where should we go today? Oh, let me follow the cloud. Easy to figure out where I need to go. At night, there's the pillar of fire. It's not moving. I guess we'll stay here. Easy to choose that. You know, I mean, and you just imagine what it would be like. You wake up in the morning and say, oh, oh. It, where's, where, where are we supposed to go? What's happening? You look outside. Oh, the cloud's still there. We're good. And we think to ourselves, man, that would be great if we could see that. But what we have is something far better than that. We don't have to rely on any external signs or anything like that to, to get guidance from the Lord. We have the presence of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit living inside us to lead us and to guide us. And, and we, we're able to receive guidance from the Lord directly to us, not through another person, not through any other means, but we can hear him speak to us. And Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Listen, if you struggle with knowing whether God is speaking to you, um, I, I tell you, just, just learn, learn to listen on little things and it'll get easier to listen on the big things. I remember a time when I was uh, between churches. The first church I was at, um, uh, I, I got hurt there. I've told you a little bit about that. Almost left the ministry. I decided I didn't want any part of it. But in this meantime, God did some healing and, uh, and I remember one night after he had, had really worked in my life and I'd gotten the desire to get back into, into, into ministry. And I remember I had been praying, Lord, I just wanna, I want to learn how to hear your voice. I want to follow you. I, wanna, I don't want to miss it when you whisper in, something in my ear. And I remember one time uh, at, uh, 
I was trying to get hold of a friend. I was at work, worked the swing shift, and it was something important. I have no idea what it was, but it's something I needed to get a hold of him as soon as possible because he wasn't going to know something that he needed to know, and it was going to be too late, whatever it was. That's all I remember. And I remember, I, I, you know, when I'd get a little break, I'd run into the break room, and I'd go to the pay phone, and I'd dial his phone, and, and every single time, I, now I can't remember if he didn't answer, if it was a busy signal, I could not get through, no matter how often I tried. Every few minutes when I'd get a chance, I'd go and try to make the phone call. Couldn't get through, couldn't get through. And finally, after I'd been there for a little while, one time I went in there into the break room, and I dialed the number, nothing, same thing, busy signal, could not get through. And I started to leave the break room. I got about 20 feet away from the door. Remember, I've been praying, Lord, teach me to hear your voice. And all of a sudden, I heard something inside say, go try it again right now. And I thought, okay, I've been praying, Lord, to hear your voice. So if this is you, I'm going to go do it. And I went and did it, and he picked up on the first ring. And, and, and you say, well, that's a small thing. Yeah, it's a small thing. But that was training me to recognize the voice of the Lord. And as I learned to recognize his voice in the small things, then he's able to talk to me about bigger things because the bigger thing is going to be scarier, Right? The bigger thing is going to be easier for us to say, I don't know if that's God or not. I mean, that, I don't want to do that. That's scary. That's, that's bigger than I, than I am. That's more than I can accomplish. So I, I'm not sure if that's Lord, the Lord or not. But if I've learned to listen on the small things, it makes it easier then to respond in obedience when he asks me something bigger because I will be convinced I know the voice of, of the Lord. I know when he's talking to me, so I'm going to do what he says. So how, how do we receive guidance today? Again, as I said before, number one, first thing you got to do. First thing you got to do is get into Scripture. Part of the reason is, is Scripture is what teaches you to recognize His voice. Because if there's a, you know, if there's, if you hear a thought, you know, come into your mind, and that thought is something that is not scriptural, if you don't know the word, you can be deceived. Right? But if you know the word and he says something to you that's not scripture, you can say, I know that's not God. But, but it, and not only that, when, you, when it's scriptural, when the Lord speaks to you and it lines up with scripture, you can say, okay, all right, this, is, this, is, this could be him. So we have scripture. Number two, as I said, we have the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And, and don't forget, he rarely shouts. It's that still, small voice. Another thing that helps provide guidance, and, and, and part of our problem is that sometimes we put this way up the list, and it shouldn't be way up the list, but, but circumstances. Uh, because so, sometimes circumstances help us to recognize the will of the Lord. A, a, a simple example of this, and it was more of a confirmation than anything else, was then. When, when uh, the Lord called us and we came here, uh, you know, we had to try to sell our house in Georgetown and, and we got it on the market on Sunday night. It finally went live on Sunday night and by Monday afternoon, we had a cash offer on the table. Well, that doesn't just happen. Those are circumstances that helped reaffirm what I believed God had already been telling us, see? But, but now don't get the car before the horse because I've known people that say, well, here's the circumstances, this must be God. No, 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 no. You hear from God and let circumstances serve as confirmation. Don't use circumstances as sole means to determine the will of the Lord, okay? Another thing is godly counsel, and I emphasize godly counsel. You know, I remember there was a time in my life long before I met Julie that there was a girl that I was dating and uh, I, I wanted, I thought, I wanted to spend my life with her. The problem was I was called into ministry and she really didn't even want to serve the Lord. There's a problem there. But our emotions lie to us, don't they? And I remember I went to lunch one day with one of my best friends. His name is Neil Wilson. Julie knows Neil. And I went with him. And his mom went to lunch with us. Don't know the circumstances. But she was a woman that I knew was a godly woman. I knew she heard from the Lord. 
I knew she was in touch with the Lord. I truly, fully respected that when she said something, you know, that, that you didn't take it lightly. And I remember sitting down at that lunch and, uh, and I remember having in the conversation, she said, you know, you know, and this is before I'd gotten back into ministry. She said, you know, you know, David, you know, the Lord's not done with you, right? I said, yeah, I know that. I know that. And then she said something, and this is, took a lot of courage on her part, but it was definitely under the uh, leadership of the Holy Spirit. She said, you know, if you're going to do that, you have to let go of, and I won't say her name. And I broke down and cried and said, I know. I know. And I made, I made a decision, and that godly counsel helped me move me in the right direction. And then later, you know, when I met Julie and married her, all I can say is, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so you got godly, godly counsel. And then the final thing, and, and this is sometimes, again, we elevate this too far. Uh, it, it's the peace that we get from the Lord. When we make the decision, we say, well, I'm at peace with it. Well, listen, don't just use pieces. That's not your final determining, determining factor but it's something that helps add. It's more of almost like a spiritual circumstance, if you will, that you have peace. Because the truth is we can convince ourselves about anything. We're, we're, we're justifi justification machines when it comes to making bad choices and sins as human beings. You know, how many of you have known somebody that made horrible, sinful decisions and they justified it in, I mean, in just crazy ways? So, so we can, but we can do that internally too. We can convince ourselves to the point where we have gotten to the point where we say, listen, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. And we can say, I've got, reached this resolve. And we can say, that's peace. Well, you know, it's an important factor. But again, it's not the number one factor. It's one of those things. And when you, when you begin to put all of these things together, you begin to get a much better picture. When you're in the scripture and you're listening to the, to the Lord in your prayer time and you're listening for the voice of the Spirit and, and, you, and you're examining the circumstances and listening to the voices of godly people around you and, and you have the peace of God in your heart, when all of these things come together, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty easy decision. It's a pretty easy step then to say, I know what the Lord is saying to me. And, and we can receive that kind of guidance because we have the presence of God in our lives. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you.